Hi, I'm Dr. Fred Silva of Arcana Laboratories, coming to you from Little Rock, Arkansas, with another installment of Throwback Thursday. Questions answered, at least partially, from the 1970s to the present time. A half a dozen examples of what we didn't know then, but do know now. While working with Dr. Conrad Perani at Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, a large number of questions came up that we didn't know the answers to. As the saying goes, I don't know any of the answers, but I sure do know the questions. Some of the questions now have answers, at least partial answers. Here are some examples. First question, what do we do, how do we deal with and classify a biopsy from a patient with SLE and the overt nephrotic syndrome in which the biopsy shows only a class one or class two and we believe the biopsy to be representative. We now know that SLE as well as other diseases and entities can have a podocytopathy in which the visceral epithelial cells, the podocytes, are affected and participate in severe loss of perm selectivity of the glomerulus and proteinuria. Thus, in spite of no evidence of the standard WHO, ISN, RPS activity, these patients' proteinuria usually respond to steroids. Next, what does it mean when a post-infectious glomerulonephritis, now termed infection-related glomerulonephritis, shows only C3 immunofluorescent staining? Where is the immunoglobulin? Dr. Alfie Fish and others at the University of Minnesota worked on this finding, as others, an attempt to find the immunoglobulin covered or the antigen, a bacterial antigen. We now know that some of these C3-only glomerular processes may be investigated for disorders of the alternate complement pathways or an alternate alternate pathway. Because of the fairly newly recognized C3 glomerulonephritis, as well as the unmasking techniques of pronase digestion, many of the biopsies with an MPGN-like pattern are not now placed in the old category of MPGN type 1 or other types, such as type 3 of Burkholder or type 3 of the Cincinnati group. Indeed, the chapter of MPGN type 1 has either been superseded by C3EGN, including dense deposit disease, which is not now termed MPGN type 2, and other entities. It's getting very complex. Next, before the end of the 1970s, we really did not know what crescentic glomerulonephritis without obvious immune deposits was. There was a suspicion that this idiopathic crescentic glomerulonephritis without deposits was somehow related to vasculitis, but the classification and knowledge about vasculitis was frankly a mess. Then Davies and many others discovered that ANCA, anti-neutrophilic cytoplasmic antibodies, was not only a good marker of vasculitis, but a pathogenetic mechanism of disease. The same held true for some of the posse-immune focal glomerulonephritis that were seen. Next, number four. Marked proteinuria not always caused by a primary glomerular disease. Although we were always taught and teach that severe proteinuria or the nephrotic syndrome is a primary glomerular disease, 
Some patients with severe proteinuria were found by biopsy to show only a vascular process. Dr. Priscilla Kincaid-Smith published a paper suggesting that moderate hypertension could itself lead to moderate to severe proteinuria, 3 to 8 grams of proteinuria per 24 hours. Many renal pathologists did not believe that study and suggested that there was, in those patients of Kincaid-Smith, an undiagnosed primary glomerular disease that led to the hypertension. We now know that moderate hypertension can lead to proteinuria, with the renal biopsy not showing a primary glomerular process, but only a vascular disease or what is thought to be a secondary glomerular process. Control, lowering of the hypertension, leads to decrease in proteinuria, as shown in a 1998 ASN abstract by Barrisoni and others since then. Number five, what in the world is the antigen leading to membranous glomerulonephropathy? For 40 years or longer, investigators have thought that finding the antigen in membranous would be straightforward, if not fairly easy. It was not. Tumor antigens were searched for in patients with membranous glomerulonephropathy and cancer, but not found. It was not until the seminal studies of David Salant and others that an antigen, PLA2R, was found in many cases of membranous glomerulonephropathy. Others have followed. Next, number six, chronic pyelonephritis and interstitial inflammation. In the 1960s and even into the early 1970s, whenever a biopsy showed interstitial inflammation with interstitial fibrosis and paraglomerular fibrosis with or without thyroidization of the tubules, in the setting of chronic renal disease, the diagnosis of chronic pyelonephritis was often made. After Heptonstall, Kimmelsteel, and many others showed that these patients did not have histories of urinary tract infection, much less involvement of the upper tracts, it was recognized that the kidney responds in a limited fashion to a thousand different injurious agents. Interstitial inflammation is now most often seen in cases of drug allergy, toxicity, hypersensitivity, and so on, and the frequency of chronic pyelonephritis has dropped precipitously because of the non-specificity of the light microscopic changes. Many more examples of success have followed, but some things haven't worked. Consider IgA fibronectin or dermal vascular IgA to be specific for Berger's IgA nephropathy, doesn't work. Antibodies to Tamhorsfall protein, uromodulin, as evidence of upper urinary tract involvement with infections and obstruction. We don't use it because it hasn't worked. There are many other examples. Thank you for listening. This podcast and more can be found in the iTunes and Google Play stores. For more information and educational programming like this, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit us on the web at arcanalabs.com.